0: We are in John chapter 10, last week we took that very brief break to preach on baptism and uh, today we will be in John chapter 10 from verses 22 to verse 30, Uh, so I will read that out, John chapter 10 verses 22 to 30, this is God's Word. At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. on Jesus revealing himself as the Good Shepherd. And this paints this glorious picture of the redemption that God had foreordained from before the foundation of the world. And the first aspect of this redemption we see in the Good Shepherd discourse is that of Jesus coming and uh, calling his sheep to himself. So he calls his sheep out of whatever sheepfold they're in with a mixture of all sorts of sheep, and he comes in and says, I have come to call my sheep to myself so that they may have life in me. And the second aspect we saw of this is that Jesus calls his sheep, not only does he call them sheep to, to himself, but he actually lays down his life for the sheep. He sacrifices himself for his own sheep and the incredible thing about that was seeing that the metaphor Jesus uses is of a man, that is a shepherd, laying down his life for an animal, for sheep. It's an incredible picture. And the good shepherd we saw is willing to lay down his life for every single one of his sheep. This gives immense value to every one of his sheep because each sheep is one that the Father, Son, and Spirit had agreed in perfect unity to save from before the foundation of the world. And so this discourse that we see in John chapter 10 is particularly clear in showing God's sovereignty over the salvation of his sheep. God is in control of the salvation of his sheep. He will not lose a single one of them. Notice the language, the the certainty In the language that we see in this passage here in verses four to five, all the way at the beginning of John chapter 10, Jesus says, the sheep of the shepherd hear his voice and they follow him and they do not follow strangers. There's a certainty about this. Jesus speaking matter of factly. He's not saying that they might follow, rather that they will follow my voice. Even in verse 27 in our passage today, he says with even greater clarity, my sheep Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and more than that, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. It's impossible. My sheep are secure in me, Jesus says. So, what is abundantly clear in this passage, especially when we take it in light of the rest of Scripture, is that God secures the salvation of His people with great assurance from start to finish. He secures their salvation. It's not a question in God's mind as to whether they will be saved. It is a matter of assurance. He secures their salvation. And this is what we will see as we go through our passage. So as we begin in verse 22, John here gives us a bit of context. Notice he says this is at the time of the Feast of Dedication. Now the Feast of Dedication was uh, a religious Uh, ceremony that is not in the Old Testament. It's one that began in about the 2nd century BC. It's to commemorate the Maccabean Revolt. If you've ever heard of that before in Jewish scriptures, there are these books called One and Two Maccabees, which talks about this historical event where uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, you might remember him from our time in Daniel, this Hellenistic ruler uh, of the Seleucid Empire, had taken over Jerusalem and He was causing all sorts of chaos and the Jews were under severe persecution. And the Feast of Dedication was to commemorate this time where a man named Judas Maccabeus rose up and he was a priest figure um, and he led an army and eventually they overtook um, and and, uh, recaptured the temple which had been um, destroyed uh, in in the sense of being blasphemed by him setting up a pig in the altar and they had recaptured and re-cleansed it. And they had taken it back, and they had then celebrated this event of taking back the temple, of taking it back from the Hellenizers, which were people trying to make everything Greek. Uh, They had taken back the temple, and this feast of dedication was to celebrate that event, and it's now known as Hanukkah, December 25th in the Jewish calendar, which is still to this day, 2,000 years plus later, celebrating this time where Judas Maccabeus overtook Antiochus Epiphanes and they recaptured the temple. And the key thing about this is that this Judas Maccabeus figure was seen as a messiah. Many people at that time believed that he was the messiah. Uh, He died later on. They quickly realized he was not the messiah, but they celebrated this event to remember that there was a time where they took back the temple and it was then to look forward to the day where their Messiah would eventually come and would cleanse everything, would bring a political and physical reign. So every year celebrating the Feast of Dedication would give Jews this great longing for their promised Messiah, who they believe would bring a physical and political reign And this perhaps sets the scene for the question that the Jews ask here. See, it's possible that John is just mentioning that it's the Feast of Dedication, just to give us some historical context. But it could also be perhaps uh, setting the scene for uh, the way the Jews approach Jesus here, which is similar to the way they might have approached Judas Maccabeus as this political and physical leader of an army who was going to overthrow the Hellenizers. And so in verse 24, the Jews gather around him and they say, "'How long will you keep us in suspense? "'If you are the Christ, tell us plainly.'" Now, that question that they ask there, how long will you keep us in suspense, this is one of the few times uh, in Scripture where in the original language it's uh, uh, very different, and this is a sort of turn of phrase, so it's translated quite differently. In the original language, it's literally, they come and they say, "'How long will you lift up our souls?' Or how long will you take up our souls? That's what what they're saying here. And it's a turn of phrase that could actually convey a sense of frustration. Like they're saying, how long will you grip our souls? How long will you agonize us? How long will you provoke us, Jesus? And they say, they actually demand, tell us plainly. Tell us if you are the Christ. Now that's important to understand their approach to this, that they're actually a bit antagonistic. They're actually a bit frustrated in coming to Jesus. It's important to understand because the picture we should not see here is one of people who are coming to Jesus and they're innocently saying, Jesus, show us that you're the Messiah. They're not innocently coming to him and then the picture is of Jesus cruelly hiding it from them. That's not the picture we have here. Rather, it is the same antagonism that we have seen all throughout John's Gospel. The same antagonism of the Jews coming to Jesus, demanding that he fit in with their preconceived ideas. And so their desire for him to say that he is the Christ is not really a desire for Jesus to truly reveal himself as he is. Rather, it is a demand that Jesus fits in with their preconceived ideas of what a Messiah should do. Something like Judas Maccabeus, who's going to overthrow the Roman government who's going to take a a political reign and destroy all of the enemies of Israel and restore the kingdom. And we have seen already that Jesus does not accommodate this approach in any way. Remember back in John chapter 6 after Jesus fed the thousands, probably like 15 or 20,000 people known as the feeding of the 5,000. And what happens immediately after that? We read that the Jews try and make him king by force. Imagine that, trying to force someone to become king. And what does Jesus do? He gets out of there. He withdraws. He's not going to go down that road. He's not going to be that type of Messiah. They're expecting a political, physical Messiah, so much so that they're willing to take him by force, and he is going to avoid that at all costs. So Jesus does not accommodate this approach in any way. He says in verse 25, "'I told you, and you do not believe.'" The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And here is where we see in our passage the problem with unbelief. And what we see in this passage is both the problem of unbelief and then we'll see the solution, God's solution to unbelief. But firstly, in this problem of unbelief, we see two aspects of this. One aspect is the surface level manifestation of unbelief. That is how everyone's unbelief surfaces. And then we will see what is at the core of that unbelief. But firstly, let's look at just the surface level manifestations of unbelief. This is where we see that unbelief is a symptom of our sin nature that everyone has that manifests in a demand for God to conform to our image rather than for us to be conformed to God. That's at the core of unbelief in terms of its surface level manifestation. It's not simply atheism. Unbelief is not confined to atheists. Unbelief is where we fail to believe the true God. That is at the core of unbelief, where we fail to believe the true God. And the Jews have demonstrated all throughout John's gospel that they are not willing to take Jesus at his word unless he conforms to their preconceived ideas of who he is. They have a Messiah in their mind. They want him to fit in with their views. And this is part of the reason why Jesus is very intentional not to explicitly say, I am the Messiah to the Jews. Notice how he says here in verse 25, Uh, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now, when he says, I told you, Jesus never actually explicitly says to the Jews, I am the Messiah. Rather, he performs works that say that he is the Messiah. He reveals that he is the Son of God. He reveals it in various ways, but he never explicitly says I am the Christ or I am the Messiah to the Jews. He reveals it to perhaps the Samaritan woman where she confesses that he is the Messiah and he says, yes, it is I standing before you. He reveals it to his disciples but never actually explicitly to the Jews. And part of this is because Jesus knows the hearts of men. Remember back in John chapter two, many people came to Jesus and believed in him and Jesus did not believe in them or they trusted in him and Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in the hearts of men. He knew what was deep within their hearts. He knew that they were not really believing in him. He knew that it was a surface level faith. So he does not speak this way to the Jews. He knows that their desires are not for a Messiah to come and atone for sins by dying, He knows that their desires for a Messiah are not for someone who would come and dine with sinners and elevate them to incredible status as he forgives their sins. That's not what they want. They desire a political Messiah. They desire someone who will physically rule. And uh, similar to the Trump statement of make America great again, they desire someone who's going to make Israel great again. Someone who's going to restore the kingdom in that way. Like we saw in chapter 6 where they try and take him by force to make him king. So Jesus does not explicitly say that he is the Messiah because he knows that their understanding of a Messiah is not what he has come to do as the Messiah. Instead, he reveals his Messiahship to them through the works. So notice again in verse 25, he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. This is how he has revealed that he is the Messiah to the Jews. He has turned water into wine. He has performed an incredible miracle at the wedding feast, performing water into wine. He has healed the official son in chapter 4 without even being in the same physical location. He has healed the invalid of 38 years and he restores him. He has fed thousands of people with barely enough food to feed a family and yet somehow it feeds up to 15, 20,000 people. And he has just in chapter 9, opened the eyes of a man born blind, which people recognise never in the history of the world has this happened. He has performed many signs that show that he is the Messiah and in spite of this, the Jews still do not believe. They demand that Jesus speaks plainly, but Jesus knows there is no level of clarity possible to please their unbelieving hearts. The stubborn, unbelieving Jews would simply not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, even if he wrote it on their foreheads with his very own finger. They would simply not believe. And this is how we so often see the surface level manifestations of belief, even to the, of unbelief rather, even to this day. People become stuck in their preconceived ideas of who they think God ought to be. And not even the plainest of explanations will satisfy them because the reality is they've carved a God in their own image. So we hear people now, today, saying, if God were real, why doesn't he show himself to me? And they are really demanding that God meet them on their terms rather than coming to God on his terms. And he will never, ever allow people to dictate how he reveals himself. Or people now say, my God is a God of love and He would never send people to hell for who they are in and of themselves. And yet again, they are carving a God in their own image. They are demanding that God conforms to their preconceived ideas. And it is simply a manifestation of unbelief, regardless of whether they say they believe in God or not. It is a symptom of their unbelief. The same stubborn unbelief that we see in the Jews here who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, even though he has performed signs that only a Messiah could do, and he has made claims that only a Messiah could make. So this is the surface level manifestation, but now we come into the core of unbelief. Here's where Jesus gives the core reason for unbelief. In verse 26, he says, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now this is a, a hard statement. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep, and this is the reality of perpetual unbelief, where those those who remain defiant to God do so because they are not of God. This is the same point that Jesus has made in chapter eight, verse forty-seven, where he says, "Whoever is of God hears the words of God." But then he says, "The reason why you do not hear is because you are not of God." That's what he says. The truth about belief is that it belongs to those who belong to God. That's the reality of belief. Jesus is very clear to say here, the reason you don't believe is that you are not of God. The reason you don't believe is that you are not of my sheep. Now, there are some very important qualifications we have to make with this so that we rightly understand this teaching. The first qualification is that we all All of us in our natural state suffer from the terminal illness of unbelief. We are all born into unbelief. From a human perspective, we are all terminally ill with unbelief. That is to say, there is no man-made cure to unbelief. There is no schmick spiel that someone can give that can cure unbelief. Not even the most rational of arguments for God can cure the sin of unbelief left in our natural state because at the core of our unbelief is a rebellious heart toward God. There is no innocent unbelief. It is a rebellious heart toward God. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he says, we follow the prince of the power of the air. That is, we are all under the authority of of the devil, in one sense, in our natural state. We all follow our sinful desires. He says, by nature, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That paints a pretty bleak picture for man in his natural state. We, like sheep, had gone astray We were not innocent sheep who wandered off to find a little bit of lovely grass and maybe we were going to come back. No, we rebelled against our shepherd. We intentionally walked away because by nature we were hostile in our minds. So the same stubborn unbelief that we see here in the Jews is the same stubborn unbelief that by nature we have. Now the second qualification here is that only God's sovereign mercy can heal this unbelief. So in Ephesians 2, back to that passage I just mentioned, Paul goes on to say, after painting that bleak picture of being by nature children of wrath, and he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. We are dead and left to our own devices, we permanently stay dead. We stay in unbelief. A dead person cannot make themselves alive, and that's not what Paul says here. He doesn't say, you were dead, and then you became alive. He says, God made you alive. He made you alive. He's the one who brought you to life. The clear point here is that the sole mover in our salvation is God alone. As Jonathan Edwards once said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin, that's all that we contribute. So the problem with unbelief is that it is a symptom of our sin nature. We are all infected with it and our sin nature leaves us dead to the things of God and completely unable to come to Him. Now here's where we get to the solution. Here is the hope. The solution to unbelief. That is God's solution to the problem of unbelief. We see it implicitly here in verse 27 as we move on in our passage. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now here is where we talk about the doctrine of election which I think as we take this within the passage, uh, within the wider context of Scripture, this paints a beautiful picture of God's solution to the problem of unbelief, which is that He has elected a people to be saved. Because left to our own devices, we remain in stubborn unbelief. God's solution is that He has predestined a people who belong to Him, who would hear the voice of the Good Shepherd calling them out to have life in Him. Him. If God did not secure this, if God did not secure this by divine election, then no one would come to the good shepherd. No one would come. Left to our own devices, we continue to be rebellious sheep that walk away. We are dead in sin. See, this is the reality of the death and resurrection, the life, death and resurrection of Christ. It doesn't just make us savable. It doesn't just make everyone savable as though uh, the cross of Christ sort of covers a little bit of our sin and then makes everyone savable and then allows them to make their own choice of life or death. No, that doesn't deal fully with it. We still choose death every time left to our own devices. The comfort of the cross of Christ, of the death and resurrection of Christ, is that it secures salvation for the sheep. It ensures that sheep will be saved. It doesn't leave it, even if it's 99% God and 1% us. That 1% is enough to send all of us to hell. God secures the salvation of his sheep. So we read in John chapter 10 that Jesus, as the good shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep. And his sheep will follow him. He owns his sheep. He calls them by name because their names are names that were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. He comes to his own to call his own out and to come to himself. And here is the mystery of God's redemption. The beautiful mystery of God's redemption is that the voice of the Good Shepherd goes out into all the world and it falls on deaf ears to many. We don't have any idea who belongs to God. The voice goes out, and though it falls on deaf ears to many, to those who belong to God, at some stage, they may have heard it a thousand times before, and it seemed like it fell on deaf ears, but at some stage, God has assured that they will hear the voice of the shepherd calling them out, and they will follow him. That's what we see in this passage. Jesus speaks matter-of-factly. He assures it, they will follow me. And how sweet that voice is to not only knock on the door, it's not as if he just knocks on the door of rebellious hearts, he kicks open the door of rebellious hearts. He takes out the heart of stone, he gives a heart of flesh, and it, that heart delights in following the good shepherd. Christ will pursue every single one of his sheep because they belong to him. Now this is where we must have a right understanding of the doctrine of election, of this idea that there are those whom belong to God, predestined before the foundation of the world. A right understanding of God's sovereign election is one that leads us to the greatest of humility. There is no pride at all that can remain with a right understanding of this because, as we have seen, the clear implication of this is that left to our own devices, we all remain in unbelief. If, if the shepherd doesn't come for his own sheep, we stay like sheep, just wandering about in our filth, wandering away from the shepherd. He must come and call us to himself. If God did not choose us, we would not choose him. And this is an undeniable truth from Scripture and it is a humbling truth. It's a humbling truth that God in His mercy, knowing full well our future rebellion against Him, knowing full well that we would be enemies of Him in our minds, yet He would graciously, graciously determine before the foundation of the world that we might be brought to life in Christ and we might taste And see that he is good. We might taste of his goodness in salvation. Though he full well knew our rebellion. And this is why we can have no pride toward anyone else in unbelief. We can have no pride toward our salvation. Because we would be no better off apart from the mercy of God. We would be no better off apart from his gracious salvation. There was no foreseen faith that he saw within us. That sprouted up somehow from within, nor was there any good that he saw within us. There was pitch black rebellion and still God in his mercy said, I want to save them. I want to send my son to save them. They belong to me. I don't care how much they rebel. I'm going to wash them clean. I'm going to make them new. I'm going to make them my own and I will assure that. I will secure that. And here is the good news election. The good news is that God does not leave our salvation down to what we decide in our rebellious hearts. He gives us new hearts. He brings us to life so that we might trust in Christ. And He secures that. He secures that redemption by ensuring that the Spirit would bring us to life in Christ. So to summarize that, the problem with unbelief is that it is a, a terminal disease which by human standards, leaves us unable to believe. And God's solution is that he ensures the belief of those whom he has mercifully chosen. Now, here is where we get to the main comfort and the main point of this passage here. We see not only that God secures our belief in Christ, but we also see that He secures our full redemption to the end. And this is the comfort, and this is the reason why I think it's important to address the doctrine of election here, because the next passage that we look at, this point of Jesus preserving His sheep, we sometimes know as the perseverance of the saints, the idea that the saints will persevere because God preserves them. Now, if we believe in a sovereign God who ordains the election of his sheep, we can take great comfort in the fact that he will secure their full redemption. He would not choose from before the foundation of the world sheep to come to him and then leave them up to their own devices so that they wander off. He secures their redemption. So in verse 28, Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, this passage literally says, it's like Jesus saying here in verse 28 when he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. He's saying, there's a double negative there where it's as if he says, they will never, ever perish unto eternity. That would be the literal translation of that. They will never, ever perish. Unto eternity. It's emphatic. It's absolute. What comfort there is for us in these words. That the same hand that stretched out and picked us up out of the miry clay and washed us clean and set our foot upon the rock is the same hand that will hold us fast until he presents us before the Father in glory. That is the comfort that we have. This is what is commonly called, as I said, the perseverance of the saints. We as the saints persevere. That is to say, we we continue. And we, we continue, we persevere because we are preserved by the author and perfecter of our faith. We persevere because we have someone preserving us. What greater picture can we have of preservation than Christ himself saying here, No one can snatch you out of my hand. No one. No one can snatch you out of my hand. It's impossible. What a fool to try and snatch you out of my hand. And just as we saw the perfect unity of the Father and Son, way back in verse 15, if you remember, Jesus says, My sheep know me just as the Father and the Son know each other. He's saying His knowledge for the sheep is the same as the knowledge that the Father and Son have had. For all eternity... That's how he knows the sheep. And he says here, likewise, the father and the son together hold the sheep. There is a perfect unity of father and son in the preservation of the elect. So Jesus says here, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, whose hand are we in? Jesus says, you're in my hand. No one snatched them out. And then he says, oh, they're in my Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. Whose hand are we in? Well, we're in both. It's like Jesus saying, if you're in my hand, you're in his hand. If you're in his hand, you're in my hand. We're one. We're one in this. The Father, Son, and Spirit, we might add, are perfectly united in their redemptive plan so much so that each one of them perfectly preserves us. The Spirit preserves us as He guides us into all truth, and He is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Son preserves us as He intercedes for us always at the right hand of the Father. And the Father preserves us as He holds us in His tight grip like a father would to their child. See, when we grasp God's sovereignty over even election. We can relish in his sovereignty over our full redemption, over the fact that he will hold us fast. He will not lose a single one from start to finish. Now, I want to finish by looking at three particular ways briefly that God preserves us in this life that we can take great comfort by. Firstly, God preserves us through doubts. He preserves us through doubts. Our assurance in this life is not based upon our ability to hold fast to Christ. Though we are exhorted to hold fast to Christ, the grounds of our assurance, that is the foundation of our assurance, is not based upon our ability to hold fast to Christ. It is based upon His ability to hold fast to us. That's the grounds, that's the foundation of our assurance. It's like when I'm walking with Eleora, Lewis is just chaotic everywhere, but if I'm walking with Eliora close to the lake, and often we do this and there's no barrier on the lake, and if I want absolute assurance that she's going to be safe, I'm not going to say, Eliora, you've got to hold on to my hand, and as long as you hold on to my hand, you'll be okay. I'm not going to leave it up to her. I'm going to hold very firmly to her hand, and the assurance is going to be based upon the father, her father, holding fast to her as she walks alongside The lake. Likewise for us, there will be times in our lives where we are in precarious situations. There will be times in our lives where we will succumb to our own weakness and we will struggle to truly believe certain things about God. We will face this. We will be faced with broken relationships that leave us in utter despair. We will be faced with financial circumstances that hang over us like an impossible weight and we will struggle to believe that God will provide every single one of our needs. We will question our own salvation because we will have particular sins in our lives that will linger around and we will question whether we are Saved, and the grounds of our assurance in those circumstances will not primarily be found in our ability to somehow exercise extraordinary faith in that moment. The grounds of our assurance will be as we rest in Christ's faithfulness toward us. It will be in God's faithfulness. It is not in our ability to hold on to Christ, but His ability to hold on To us and there is a dramatic difference in which serves as the grounds of your assurance it will be an extremely difficult walk if the grounds of your assurance is in your ability to hold fast like you must exercise tremendous faith rather the grounds of our assurance is as we see in this passage here that he promises to hold on to us with an eternally strong grip that's the grounds of our assurance so he preserves us through doubt. Secondly, He preserves us through suffering. A natural question that comes up in this is about how God preserves us in relation to our suffering. Has God preserved the countless Christians, possibly up to millions of Christians throughout the history of the church, who have died in gruesome deaths, who have suffered at the hands of persecution, who have been burnt at the stake who have been crucified upside down, who have been boiled in pots of oil? Has God preserved them? Has God preserved the countless Christians who have suffered through decades of cancer or early deaths of their children? And of course, the answer is yes. He preserves them through every single moment of that. The suffering that we experience in the path of obedience to our Saviour is a suffering that is perfectly within the grip of that Saviour. Perfectly within His grip. It is not as if in those moments of suffering He loosens His grip and we're somehow out of it. We are perfectly within His grip. There is simply no allowance whatsoever for anything to occur to Christ's sheep that is outside of the shepherd's perfect grip. We think of those who have suffered in persecution. Think back to Stephen's example in Acts 7, as Stephen is brutally stoned to death. This is a man whose face shone like an angel. And how does he die? With rocks smashing his skull. And he dies a gruesome death. And what happens right before his death? He looks up to heaven and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And what's interesting about that, and Michael Reeves has pointed this out before, that elsewhere through Scripture, we often read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But as one of his saints is about to die and pass into glory, the Son of Man is standing, almost in anticipation, watching over his saint, And somehow Stephen finds the strength being preserved in that moment to say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he passes into glory as his brain is crushed in a gruesome way, and he was preserved through every moment of that. Or for those who suffer as a result of this fallen world, God preserves us through every ounce of our suffering because he is using every moment of it, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to prepare For us, an eternal weight of glory. Every single moment of suffering, we consider light and momentary because in comparison to the glory that awaits us, it is simply preparing us more and more for that eternal weight of glory that we will get. He is using every moment of suffering to make us more and more like our suffering servant. He is using it to make us more and more like Christ, And to remind us that even in those moments of suffering, our suffering servant is interceding for us through every single moment. And we are preserved through the suffering because God has presented before us this glorious reward that we must keep our sights on. And you will lose the battle of suffering if you do not have your sights set upon this glorious future heavenly reward that He has set before us, our full inheritance that reward that made Paul able to say, the sufferings of this time, And this was a man who, was, who suffered tremendously, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, flogged, and he says the sufferings of this time, they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. They're not worthy. It's incomparable. What a silly comparison. All of the sufferings of this life compared to an eternity of glory. And God preserves us by setting before us that reward and calling us to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, who is the goal of our reward. So God preserves us through suffering. Lastly, He preserves us by calling us to persevere. One of the primary means God uses to preserve His people is by constantly exhorting us to persevere, constantly saying, continue, Remain steadfast. Think of Jesus' words to the seven churches in Revelation. To every single church, he finishes by giving an exhortation and he says, to the one who conquers, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Or to the one who conquers, I will confess his name before my father. To every single one, he says, to the one who conquers. He doesn't say that they've conquered. He says, keep going. And to the one who conquers, this is waiting for you." He calls them to endure. He calls them to persevere. And here is where we find the right balance in our understanding of God's sovereignty over the entirety of our salvation, because there is a dangerous slope that we could fall off here. We have to understand that though we see God is 100% sovereign over our salvation from start to finish, we are 100% responsible for exercising our salvation. We are 100% responsible for enduring, for conquering, for moving forward. That is the necessary tension we must hold. So Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Or he says, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, why? Because it's God who works within us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Or he says, I strenuously contend with all of the strength that Christ works within me. I worked harder than everyone, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. There is this tension where we trust in God's sovereignty and yet we persevere, we endure, we conquer because we believe that God is preserving us. So the call to persevere and to conquer is set before us and we who hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, we who hear the voice of our Shepherd will follow Him in perseverance by faith until the final moment of that last day. We will persevere. The mark of a true disciple is that they persevere and they persevere because they are preserved by God Himself. This is the comfort of that we must have.